Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Today we had a conversation with Abigail Davis, who is one of your friends, right, Maggie? Yes. Yeah, we were connected through a spiritual direction center here in Atlanta. Oh, okay, great. Uh, well, we had a, a really great conversation that touched on all kinds of different topics. Um, we got to hear about Abigail's faith upbringing and uh, her deconstruction process. But I think the the most really uh, interesting part of this conversation was the discussion about the different faiths and uh, world religions and how we can learn so much from all the different world religions and is doing some really great stuff in making connections with other people in other faiths. So, yeah, it was great. I really am glad that you connected us. Yeah, I'm so glad that we were connected as well. Um, I really also enjoyed the conversation about interfaith dialogues and and really how uh, much we need each other to be able to learn from each other, to have compassion for one another. And I really love the, the grocery store image that she uses, which you'll hear when you listen. But, but I was especially drawn to the idea, again, that we all need each other and can learn from each other, but that we can become better humans by embracing the things of beauty about different religions. It doesn't make us any more or less who we are, or even, you know, it doesn't make us more or less Christian. It just makes us more well-rounded human beings that learn how to connect with, with God more deeply. But I really loved our conversation and I hope that all of our listeners out there enjoy it too. Today with us, we have Abigail, who is a first-year seminarian at the Candler School of Theology and a full-time project management consultant based in the Atlanta area. So she and I are basically neighbors. She is passionate about the spiritual journey, interfaith dialogue, and helping people get good work done. When left to her own devices, Abigail enjoys spending time with her friends, burning incense, dancing to Shakira, Shakira, trying out new recipes and throwing herself into the study of her favorite niche subject of the day. Abigail, welcome. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this and I am just so excited for the conversation that we're going to get to have today. Yeah, good to have you. Abigail, you and I got connected through a mutual friend of ours that is a spiritual director here in Atlanta. And uh, when she told me about you and she just knew that we would have a great conversation. And then you and I went to lunch for like two hours one day and just like chatted. And I think you are amazing. And uh, can you share a little bit uh, with our listeners about like who you are, a little bit about your background and your connection to spiritual direction and just all the things? Absolutely. So I think maybe the best place to start is just to give you maybe my story and how I got to the place where I am today. Um, Cause it's, it's been, it's been interesting. And so I grew up in Metro Atlanta and I was, you know, the perfect church kid, as many of us who <laughs> are listening to this podcast were um, and, and relate to that type of that archetype. My family, we, um, we were missionaries in Eastern Ukraine. We were actually where the Russians are about to invade right now. So it's a, a pretty tense situation over there. But we were over there for a couple of years. We came back and 
by and large, I lived an idyllic, on the surface, life in suburban Atlanta. Um, But again, as many of us who have grown up in church spaces, you know, all is not as it seems. And, you know, looking back in that time in my life, there's a lot that I'm thankful for. Like the friends that I mentioned, you mentioned in the intro that I love to be with, they are people who I've had for, you know, almost like 20 years now, like 10, between 10 and 20 years, just long time through it all pals. But the religious portion of my upbringing was very, very painful. And I wanted so badly to be accepted and seen as good. But when my life came crashing in, the church just, you know, stepped back and they didn't, my life didn't fit the narrative anymore of if you do these things and this, and then if you're so good, then this will happen. And then this will happen. And that's, that's not always how life works. And so pretty quickly I started to feel like I was being like observed, like a freak, like, Oh wow. Your life has, that's, that's so crazy. We don't even know any, we don't know what to do with you anymore. Like when you've gone through such a painful like experience and these people who have, you know, policed how long your shorts need to be and told you um, all kinds of things. And it had so much control over your life. But when when it really hits the fan, they step back. And so then you're left with all of the questions. And that's where um, my personal deconstruction and my unlearning and my no subsequent relearning has taken place. And, um, that was been, that's been my journey towards spiritual direction and asking questions and being open and digging deeper. And like, what's this actually about? I've spent so much of my life just trying to be seen as good and to have the right, good answer and to say the right, good things so that I could be accepted and, um, seen as good. And then maybe if I'm seen as good, then life will be easier and (laughs) I will be accepted, but that's not always the case. And so what does it mean when that illusion falls apart and you are left like with yourself and your questions and kind of your, your, you know, your, your dashed, dashed image of what the church and what Christianity is. And so, um, this is our friend, Uh, Brendan Golden, she leads the Agape Center for Spiritual Formation in Roswell. Um, I highly recommend them. They're wonderful spiritual directors. (laughs) And I would honestly recommend spiritual direction um, to anyone who's listening as well. It's just such a a wonderful sacred practice to get to take part in. But learning spiritual direction, learning about spiritual direction, just learning that I didn't have to have all of the answers or portray a certain, you know, archetype in order to be seen and loved by the divine. That was, that's been one of the greatest journeys of my life. It's been a very painful process getting to this point, but, um, very, very worth it. Do you have any ideas about why you think the church gets so weird sort of when, when people have this kind of transition in their faith, what is it about the that that the church finds so threatening or so scary 
I have this, I was thinking about this earlier and I don't know if you're familiar. I think this is the book, A Wrinkle in Time. Um, but there's like an, there's like a scene in the book where everyone's doing the same thing and all the children are outside and they're bouncing the basketball at the exact same moment. And then there are people who, who aren't doing that and they're all just kind of like, look at them and they're like, that's a threat to everything they've ever known. And so I'm going to speak particularly as as a, a white woman in the South, I'm going to speak for the white American Christian experience because I know that's very different than the black American Christian experience. I'm not going to say that white American Christians don't ever go through pain, but there is there are kind of different levels and the the types of pain I think are are, are different. So in college, I was financially destitute and selling my blood plasma for for money so that I could go to Arby's and get a dollar slider between two and five. And so that's not something that they had any idea of how to relate to or how to walk with you through. It's a threat to the narratives that they have in their head that if you are good and you do these things and you say the right words, that it's going to be okay, which is not always the truth. And also they can't take you where they've never been. And if they've never gone through those types of things, and if they've never you know, ask those kinds of questions or gone into the spiritual wilderness. They can't walk you there. And I do think it's a control thing. They can't control you in places that they've never gone. If they keep you in the spaces that um, they've experienced and they know, they can, they have, they have more sway over your life and they have more sway over the culture of their congregation and what everyone says and whatever believes and everyone kind of stays in the pack. Um, but once you break beyond that wall, there's, they, they, they don't control you anymore. And so I do think it's a little bit of a control thing. I think it's a little bit of a fear thing. Um, I think it's a little bit of a, of a, of a lack of experience thing as well. Like they don't know how to talk to someone who has gone through a hard thing. What happens when, when your life falls apart or when you get a diagnosis or when your friend comes out, or when you fall in love across religious lines, or whatever happens, and that falls outside of narratives. They just have no idea on how to respond to that, because they've been given a playbook, and you've presented an ungoogleable answer, and you've invited them into, <laughs> into um, you know, new questions and conversations that don't have prescriptive answers, and they've been trained in prescriptive answers. I love that. Yeah. The ungoogleable, the ungoogleable answer. Yes. Her <laughs> question. Yeah. That's very um, good. Yeah. Wow. What were some of those questions for you, Abigail? For me, it was like, why did God see what I was going through and think that it was okay to keep me there? For me, it was why, why was I always told that people who didn't believe like I did, they were dead and we were alive. But when you looked at them in the eyes, it's like, that's, that's not death. That's life. That's love. That's, I see myself in, in their eyes. So it, it was those kinds of questions. How big is God? Is God as good as, as people said he is? Cause if he's as good as you guys said, this is not it. Um, if the good news is good, is actually good. This isn't it. Or the news isn't that good because I'm, I feel trapped in this, in this system here. And that, 
those kinds of questions when we I came from like I started reading apologetics books when I was 10 because again I was such a good good little child who wanted to have all the right answers and say the right things and that's what all the grown-ups were like oh my gosh this tiny girl is is reading apologetics and she's so small um <laughs> but <laughs> um having something I've had to unlearn is I don't think this is just me talking at this point but I don't think truth is like the string of nouns and verbs that we thought it was. I don't think that's that's the form that truth takes. I think truth looks more like a garden that's flourishing. It, like it's more of a state of being and not a a set of claims. When you look at a fruit that's ripe, everyone regardless is like that's that's good. That's that's what's right. And we can sit and 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 dice over, you know, the details of um, theology and what form the divine mystery takes place in. And I don't, I think those are fine conversations to have. Um, but what I, the place I stop at is if you tell me that the divine mystery that is goodness itself is okay with gay children hating themselves, no, we're going to stop there um, because that's not goodness that's the Holy spirit does not sit and, you know, want us to hate ourselves. Of course, we're called to repentance on some things for me. I I'm a pretty utilitarian in my faith. I'm like, if it makes the garden grow, I don't really care what you're doing. If the fruits of the spirits are evident, scripture is pretty clear that, you know, bad trees don't produce good fruit. So if the fruit's good, mm -hmm. I'm good. <laughs> we're fine. <laughs> but, um, when you start seeing, you know, in the church, we're seeing a lot of abuse scandals come to the light. We're seeing, um, and I know in my generation, just a huge wave of distrust and anxiety and depression, I think. And this is going to be a little bit of a content warning here, but the New York Times gender just released that this year, suicides are up 51% in girls. Like, that's staggering. and. Do I think that that's a compilation of things? Yeah. Do I think that the unreasonable expectations and assumptions put on girls by religious institutions is part of that? And the subsequent fallout of realizing that, oh my gosh, this has been the life I've been living. That's so frustrating. I'm feeling lied to. I'm feeling hurt. Do I think that contributes? I do think it contributes. Um, and so... I just think that we have to step back and start to learn what goodness actually is if we're ever going to move forward. Um, because what's been going on in the church, we can't, we can't lie to ourselves anymore. This is not, this is not working. You can't, you can't look me in the eyes and say that, you know, little girls who have been, and, and, and little boys who have been sexually abused by pastors that's that's those are blips on the radar and that doesn't it does happen it happens a lot we need to we need to address this um we cannot be sitting here and pretending that the holy spirit is okay with us sweeping those things under the rug for the sake of, of grace or forgiveness um i think that's you know that's a gross misuse of 
of the scriptures and those doctrines of grace and forgiveness. Um, so I think we have a lot of work to do to to move forward as the church. I get the sense about you, Abigail, that you are not afraid of looking at painful things and no. uh, looking back on your pain and uh, and being able to see the Holy Spirit moving through your pain to bring you to a place of good fruit. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what your journey through, uh, I guess, reflecting on your pain has done for you and your soul? And my, yeah, this is, this is one of those questions that I'm going to, I'm going to speak strongly from my journey. Um, I, I'm, I am not ready to answer the question of if suffering is required for people to grow and all those things. I'm not really sure of that answer. I know it was required for me. So I actually think my my unlearning journey started when I was in middle school training for a mentorship program and they had us take a personality test. And um, my, we'll say my, my background isn't one that was characterized by grace or mercy. And we took this little personality test and I saw how low I scored on mercy. And even when I was like 12, I was like, I don't want to be someone who's like not merciful. And so the most dangerous prayer of my life was to ask to see people as God saw them. That is a profound and dangerous prayer because you will have everything taken away. You, you will have all kinds of systems taken away from you. Um, and it has been the the best thing that's ever happened to me um, and the hardest thing that's ever happened the the events that led to me finally taking away all of the curtains and the assumptions and biases that um, often come with growing up in a white American church in the, <laughs> in, in the Bible belt. A lot of the things I've had to unlearn are the I'm in the box and you are outside of the box. And as long as I'm in the box, God loves me. And I hope someday you decide to walk into my box. Um, and then in 2013, I think it was the death of, of Michael Brown. I went to a high school that um, was, was pretty racially mixed. There were a lot of, a lot of white kids, a lot of black kids. We didn't have very many other minorities, but that was primarily the, the racial composition. And I, you know, I grew up evangelical, super conservative Republican, all those things. And then I saw all of my class, my black classmates who I just respected the tar out of. They were so smart, so capable, and they started sharing their stories. And I realized how blind I had been to be their classmates in the same rooms as them and hearing their experiences. And that was kind of, that was a big moment for me of being like, there's a lot going on that I need to educate myself on. If I ever want to, I want to be a loving person. If I want to actually consider myself a loving person, I need to do this kind of work in myself. And so it started there. And then I, in college, I was very in poverty. I didn't have much financial support. I was, I was familiar with like racetrack cups. <laughs> like the $8 soda palooza cups. There was a time where I was getting my calories from like that $8 soda palooza cup to try and like 
have some sort of sustenance. And so I had presuppositions about my black neighbors just thrown against the wall and realized that everything I had been told um, from my conservative evangelical Republican background had been sorely lacking and totally incorrect. Um, Then I had my presuppositions about people who are in poverty, totally ripped away, thrown against the wall, totally found out my assumptions were incorrect. Then after school, same thing happened with um, the Muslim community. All of my assumptions just totally ripped, ripped away, thrown against the wall. And that just keeps happening. And I am very thankful for that. I'm very thankful that even my tiny, um, (laughs) that my tiny, you know, fundamentalist middle school mind (laughs) thought to pray that prayer and, and hold to it because that it's been absolutely critical in my journey as becoming a better, of becoming a better person of becoming a better Christian and unlearning some of the very painful and incorrect things that I was taught growing up. What are you learning now? Like, what have you, what has God shown you through that prayer with the people that don't look like who you were in middle school? What I've learned about God is that, just a lot bigger and better than I had ever assumed. Um, Part of deconstruction for me has also included decolonizing my theology. And so once I started, you know, decentering my experience as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, quite literally, my whole family lineage is literally from Britain and Germany and (laughs) France (laughs) as Protestants. Um, And once I started decentering that as like, you know, the Christian experience, that is when the world expanded. Um, That is when I was able to see one, um, how global the Christian tradition is and two, how global the presence of God is um inside and outside of the christian tradition and so i no longer feel as though that i am you know the sole owner of the of the keys to god um i think that i don't think i figured out god um that's absurd um but (laughs) actually i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with that for a second because that's something I, I had to very much realize is that I, I consider myself a pretty strong student. Um, but as an example, in high school, I just could not understand electricity and magnetism. Just couldn't do it. Like, I could throw balls off of cliffs all day, like in physics. You try and teach me electricity and magnetism, I'm going to look at you like you are teaching me black magic. Like, <laughs> just, just did not, <laughs> did not compute. And so... And who am I to say that I don't understand electricity and magnetism, but things stick to my fridge and the lights come on, but I figured out the eternal divine mystery. I just think that <laughs> that just requires some humility being like, yeah, I haven't figured it all out. But um, what I do think is I do think that, um, you know, this, this, that God, this, you know, source divine energy, um, you know, the supreme creator and all of that. I don't think we as Christians own them. 
I think we have a wonderful tradition and, and that we can claim if we choose to. Um, I, I, unlearning and decolonizing my faith has, has shown me a lot, a lot more of the beauty that can be there in the Christian tradition. But I just don't think I own or we own God. I don't, God can't be owned. God can be experienced. God can be known, but God can't be owned. And I think that's been the biggest thing I have been learning. That's really great. Um, it reminds me of um, a story I heard recently. Uh, they said, usually people think of religions in terms of like sports teams. So if the other religion is winning, that means my religion is losing. Can if you think about it in terms of sports teams, but they said religion is more like a language. Um, you know, my language is what I was raised with and that's what I speak the best, but there are plenty of concepts and ideas that English cannot even express that other languages can express much better. Um, and we see that even in the biblical languages, you know, in translating the Bible into English, there's just these concepts that English can't even convey. And so other languages can do that better. And that, you know, in translating that to religions, other religions can highlight other aspects of God's nature better than Christianity could even. And, you know, yeah. So. I believe that deeply. Yeah. I, I actually, this is my first time trying out this metaphor. So let me know if it makes sense. But I really see like the different really I, I i almost compare it to like grocery stores like Publix is my grocery store i go to Publix as my default grocery store i know where everything is um i know the people um so that's my default but that doesn't mean i can't go to trader joe's sometimes and <laughs> or i can't go to the buford highway farmers market or i can't go to sprouts or anything like that but you know when come when when a thanksgiving dinner comes and i've got to put it on and i need to know where everything is and i've got to you know, buckle down. I'm going to go to Publix because I know where everything is, but that doesn't make the other grocery stores bad. That just, I'm familiar with it. I know where everything is. I know how to use it. <laughs> it's what I've got. It's my background. Even going to a different public store can be like, you know, it's like <laughs> another denomination or whatever. It's exactly. Okay, I, I generally know where things yeah. are. I generally it's, it's familiar, know but what it's to expect. Just... Yeah. They're so slightly different that to make you off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I know <laughs> I'm like, all right, so if I for my for my day in, day out, like regular, regular grocery shopping, I'm gonna go to pu my Publix because I know where everything is, I know how to use it, I know how to get everything that I need from it. But I'm not like yeah. anti sprouts or anti yeah. Trader Joe's or any of those types of things. Um I just know my publics so i don't know if that made sense but that's kind of that been the <laughs> that's been my understanding recently i now what's coming to my brain is even using what you know about your publics allows you kind of gives you like a schema if you remember from psychology of like oh yeah being able to go into another store and still like navigate not necessarily another public store definitely for sure that but also to go to buford highway and be like okay well there are things that are different which if you're outside of the Atlanta area, Buford Highway Farmer's Market is the best grocery store in the entire world. Um, but you can still use what you know from your Publix to be able to navigate and have conversations with people at Buford or Sprouts or Kroger or whatever and still have a love of food. 
Exactly. And you can bond over that love of food while still like knowing your thing and appreciating their thing. And I just think that there's there's no need for it to be a competition. Again, I don't see truth as like a particular set of claims. If you are Muslim and your garden's growing and you, you, those fruits of the spirit are popping up, tree's good. That's and that's that's in that's in my faith. If you are Hindu and that tr- the tree is growing, sweet. That's the for me. That's the that's the mark. I am not gonna frankly waste my time with you know picking apart those details of you know trying to find out like how the unknowable divine (laughs) source is exactly structured when you know there's there's a potential friend in front of me who is growing and learning and producing such beautiful fruit and I want to be around them and I want to know them and I want to learn about them and I just don't see you know the the nitpicking I'm gonna call it nitpicking um as as productive particularly when we're we're in a place in the world right now where a lot of things are really hard um and we have a lot a lot of work that we need to do which is you know part of my mission is to get good work done and when we are having climate crises and there are you know, Uyghurs and internment camps and the Russians are on the border of Ukraine and all of those things. I'm not going to spend my time nitpicking other do-gooders on the particulars of the- their theology. I want to make a pal and I want to partner up with them to, to do good work. That's, you know, if we want to, if we want to talk about what we believe, we can do that after the work is done, but the work isn't done. And so that's just, it feels like a, as a Christian who, who wants to see, you know, the redemption of the world, and work towards that. I don't see the redemption of the world being me going to these conferences where you learn how to tussle with people from other faiths. That doesn't seem like a good use of my time. I think it's partnering with other people and, you know, looking at the hard things and being honest about the hard things and then going in and rolling up your sleeves and and getting it done. So the redemption of the world doesn't look like everybody has to become Christian in the end. (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Honestly, right. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get an email from this or I'm going to get an email from this as is sometimes when I, when I, when I hear that verse, like, you know, the only way to God is through Jesus. I almost imagine Jesus at the gate, like high-fiving everyone who's coming in mm-hmm. <laughs> and be like, yeah, the only way th- high five, right. like <laughs> not as like a gatekeeper, but like as a, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so I don't, that. yeah. <laughs> So I just, I think that, isn't it interesting? I think, I don't know who said this. And so if, if, if one of you guys knows, let me know, but isn't it interesting how God hates all the same people we hate <laughs> just mm. and how we, um, I think that was Anne we, Lamont. We, Anne Lamont. That sounds correct. Yeah. And, um, we just put these assumptions that, you know, God is as, you know, petty as we are, but then we're like, no, their ways are higher than ours. Like, look, I can be, I can be pretty, pretty, you know, snippy and petty sometimes, but even I love them and I know God's more loving than I am. So (laughs) I was like, if I can hold these, these people in my heart, of course God can, because I argue with my walls sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, of course God holds them. Of course. 
And for me, that's a that's my reminder when I like get all up in arms about somebody, you know, specifically that drives me crazy. There's a lot of them because I'm an Enneagram six, but um, the, <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I can do my best to love them because I know that there is a divine being that loves them more than I ever could. And I, for me, it's, I don't want to say it's like a cop out, but for me, it's like a reminder of, okay, they're loved too. <laughs> Even <laughs> though I don't want to love you, but <laughs> it helps sometimes. <laughs> uh, one of our previous podcasts, we talked about a book from a author named Marcus Borg. Have you ever heard of Marcus Borg? Yes, one of my friends, um, I think actually one of my friends mentioned that she had heard Brene Brown say that she is a, a Borgigan Christian <laughs> instead a of a born-again Christian. <laughs> a born-again I Christian. love that. I've never heard that, but that's, <laughs> that's great. But, um, you know, Borg, he's now passed away, which I'm, I really wish he would, you know, still around. We try to get him on the podcast. But um, he said, you know, isn't it amazing that the the God of the universe who created all things chose to just you know, make himself known through one world religion, which so happens to be my own. And, <laughs> and, you know, just making fun of that whole, yeah. my way. Yeah. One there. world religion. And then my particular expression, you know, in, in the year of our Lord 2021 is the correct and only way that you can possibly know. <laughs> and if you sit outside of it, then you're a heretic. <laughs> um, which I want to mention, I think we're all probably a little wrong on some things, but I don't know why we spent so much time just <laughs> fighting over it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do think it's important to, you know, learn and do it. Um, but if the garden's growing, <laughs> I'm not going to fight it. <laughs> I'm an Enneagram too. So like I you know, helpful and like generally just happy to be here and that type of thing. But I stress eight and I stress eight hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just, this is something I'm trying to learn, like where, where and how hard to draw the line. And like, where do you educate? Where do you just say, I'm, I gotta go. <laughs> but that is, I, I relate deeply to the, okay. <laughs> Uh, what now? What about this? So with that learning to like when when you can take the opportunity to educate and when you can when when it's just kind of hands up in the air, this is, a, you know, better to make a difference than make a point kind of a thing like what? Um, yeah. What has that been like for you? What have you learned? It's it honestly, you kind of have to read the posture of the person you're talking to. Um, I've had some points where like you talk to sometimes a new convert and new converts, um, depending on, you know, what denomination they've been, you know, they've, they've adopted, um, they can, you know, early stages of faith, black, white, da, da, da. And so like, I'm, I'm, I can talk to them because I understand it. And when I was younger and earlier in my faith, I did black and white thinking too. And I can, I can, I can do that. Um, when people honestly are just like ignorant and don't know and have like and like are eager to learn let's talk like that's we're all we're all on a journey um where I have a really hard time is when people who have been you know professing Christians for a really long time um start um peddling 
evil ideologies, I would call them. Um, I, I draw hard lines there. Um, largely because I, if I want to be someone who's in service to a community, I don't think the best thing I can do is surround is is to be in the company of the of the kinds of people who hurt them. I don't. I think that would be, like, it, it's one thing to be in a position where you're like helping teach other people that, but if if they're just like in this in your circle of people who you who would be you know pouring into you like as a friend or or whomever. Um, I, that there are just lines I have to draw sometimes with those types of things. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, the correct or whatever way to do. I think we're all kind of figuring it out, but I have a very, there are points where I've had to, you know, draw those kinds of lines and be like, actually, I, I, I can't, I can't do this. I, one, because sometimes I'm in a spiritually fragile place and I just can't deal with it at that point. And two, because sometimes it feels like to continue when people are not open to that point of learning, it kind of feels like, honestly, a betrayal to the people that I want to serve. Um, So I don't know if that makes sense, but like to me, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense for me to like go be best friends with someone who peddles white supremacist ideology or LG, anti-LGBTQ ideologies or any anti-minority or anti-Muslim um, or any of those types of things. Again, if... And you kind of have to read the situation of being like, where is this coming from? Is this going to, honestly, is this going to start a fight, like a physical fight? <laughs> <laughs> because you, because you stress yeah. eight, so it might actually. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I am someone, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a violent person, but like, if I was to ever see someone like harm, like harming a minority in public, I would, if, if someone had their phone out, I would, I would be the one who would like tackle <laughs> i think my, my my first instinct would be like tackle like i'm not <laughs> i don't have like a whole i don't know we can take that part out but <laughs> yeah, not, don't don't make a spectacle or yeah. don't allow it to remain a spectacle step in and yeah i'm like i'm not it. yeah exactly and just as a i don't i think this is also i don't want to call it like the role i'm not a savior or anything like that but as like a white woman with some degree of privilege, I do almost feel like a sense of responsibility in those kinds of situations. It's like, um, actually, no, we're not going to do that. This is garbage. And to stand up for people, um, and use your, your privilege for good because, um, some people will not listen. Some people do not listen to people who do not look like them. And they will listen to people who do kind of look like them because they sort of see themselves in you in a way. And so just to step in and and say, actually, no, that's not, we're not going to, we're not going to talk like that. We're not going to harass this person right now. Um, I do think that's, that's important to to use our privilege for good in those types of situations. 
Yeah. So I actually, I had a, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a black woman and uh, we were talking about racial equity and, and I, I am a chatty person. So I was just, you know, running my mouth and just kind of talking and talking and talking. And, um, and then I kind of took a step back. I said, you know, I am doing the thing that drives me the most crazy. Like white people need to shut up when we're talking about racial issues. And she said to me, and this has stayed with me. She said, but we do need you to step up and talk because there are people that won't listen to me. And so like, yeah, so that is how we can, uh, humbly leverage our privilege, not in a, mm-hmm. let me do this. Cause I know that you can't oh, do yeah. it, but in a, in that kind of situation, then it is, um, yeah, the most humble way to leverage our privilege for another person, another yeah. group of people. Absolutely. Like, if I have black friends in the room, I am not the expert on race and I am there to listen. If I am in a room full of white people, I probably know more than they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in those kind of situations, mm-hmm. it's important because I've done so much work in this area. Mm-hmm. It's important that I, you know, use my voice in that situation to educate and advocate for people who aren't in the room. So you can you can decenter your narrative while also you know still using your voice to uh, forward the cause abigail i know that you have a deep passion for uh like talking around uh interfaith and uh, um and i know that you have relationships with a lot of uh, people outside of the christian faith and a lot of um relationships with muslim people can you talk a little bit about um, what that has been like for you in, in Christian circles around people that may disagree with you having friendships outside of your Christian bubble. My relationships and, and, and friendships with people of, of, the, of the Islamic faith have, we'll say, evoked strong responses. <laughs> I have had very negative responses to it. Very much like they're going to try and convert you and... You know, they, you can't trust them because their religion says that they can lie and just all kinds of nonsense that people peddle because they get pumped full of narratives and, and they don't challenge them. Um, <laughs> but I've also found that my relationships with Muslims has also softened a lot of people. And again, it just it depends on the posture of the person. Sometimes they just don't know and it's just farther away. But when it becomes closer... They start, you know, learning more and and seeing and expanding their their hearts and minds. Um, and so my relationships with Muslims has has been a pretty foundational po- like part of my faith journey. Honestly, truly knowing Muslims and learning about Islam has made me a better Christian and not in a like, oh, I learned about that and I'm just so glad that I'm a Christian, not that type of thing, but, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but the things that I've, I've learned as a part of those friendships has edified my faith and my view of God so much. Um, it's bolstered my Christian practice. And I think that there is just so much to be learned from each other that, I think that we miss out on so much if we we close ourselves off to those kinds of relationships. Can you give us an example of one the things that you've learned? Can I tell you a story yeah. about one of my friends? 
please. I am actually like pretty good friends with a Sufi Sheikh. And so his name is Farhat and he is like one of my like favorite humans in the world. Him and his wife Habiba, just absolutely wonderful, darling people that I would just, <laughs> I would hope for everyone to get to know at some point, just the sweetest types of people. So my friend like Farhat and I, we were, we were talking one day and for me, interfaith dialogue doesn't have to be like, oh, we're all here and we're all together and we shouldn't hate each other, which is like what a lot of interfaith <laughs> events kind of sound like is like, look at us. We're sitting in the same room and no one's yelling. And I'm like, I think I want to know your favorite ice cream flavor. Like, I want to be your pal. Like, <laughs> that's my interfaith dialogue type. And so Farhat and I were talking, um, we're talking about like, what is, when do we surrender and when do we strive and what does that look like in the faith journey? And um, just really good, deep conversations about, you know, life and faith and all kinds of things. And I was driving to my aunt's house in Alabama and I, we were just talking like, like via messenger on the phone and the call drops because it's, a, it's, we were you know, crossing the border in Alabama. It wasn't great signal. <laughs> and he knew I was going to go, I was visiting my aunt and I get signal back and I, in, in Facebook messenger, you can leave a voicemail. And so I got a voicemail from my friend Farhat and Farhat, who's in Tunisia at the time, he was giggling, obviously very pleased with himself. And he was like, I don't know if you listen to this kind of music. I don't know why you wouldn't listen to this kind of music, but for you in Alabama, here is sweet home Alabama and then he like clicks on I think it was like it had to be like a CD box or any, like something like that a boom box and then Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner plays on the other side of this line with my soupy shake friend while I'm driving through Alabama and I think it's such it's, it's just a fun silly example of friendship but it was just like one of the sweetest most illuminating connecting like moments of my life of just being like we are so different in so many ways, but we are so the same in so many ways. Um, and so just some of the things that I've learned is that I can talk to Muslims and Hindus and whomever about like big things. And it doesn't need to be a fight because we're all just figuring it out. And what a privilege to get to live in a world where we get to talk to each other like we do now. And, you know, this can be a, a major blessing. Again, I, <laughs> I think sometimes people, we we imagine like, oh, if only I had lived then. And why did, I was born in the wrong era or whatever. I was like, I was born right where I'm supposed to be because I can get like three types of Mediterranean food delivered to my door <laughs> in under an hour. <laughs> I can talk to people from all over the world. <laughs> I can I'm like this is this is the best part of human history ever. This is such an exciting time to be alive. But um and you can learn about other religions by in other like worldviews by talking to them and not um you know having to like well I'm trying to think of a time what did what did people do before Google? Just assume that their pastor was right. <laughs> I on mm -hmm. <laughs> based on <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um but I will say there is some like St. Francis of Assisi during the Crusades went 
to the to the to the Muslim world at that time and made friends. That's great. So that's it's, it's something that has precedent. And he actually something interesting about Saint Francis is he, is he respected the five daily prayers so much he wound up doing them. He was like, "This is a great practice," and wow. he took it back yeah. with him. Like I think that there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Yeah, and and wasn't it Bonhoeffer that sent a letter to Gandhi and said, "You know, you." implement the teachings of the sermon on the mount better than christians do teach us how to do this yeah it's amazing do you think that there's a lot of um you know unbeknownst to most christians you know on the assumptions that they make do you think that there's actually a lot of similar theology to overlap uh islam and judaism and christianity and zen and hinduism and all of you know is there more overlap than we think I think so, yes. So my experience of, you know, my spiritual journey, I almost describe it as like walking around the globe, like or walking around a sphere. Like a very rudimentary understanding of religion is like, oh, they're all the same. They all believe the exact same thing. And then as you learn a little bit more, you get farther away from each other. And you're like, oh, well, we have all of these differences and da, 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 da. And we have all of that, that, that. And then as you keep going... <laughs> they start to look very similar again. And so I do think that there is a lot of overlap. Um, And I think that we really, we miss out on a lot of beauty when we um, close ourselves off to those friendships and relationships. But they also each have their own flavor based on culture and geography and wherever in the cultures in which they came to be, which makes them beautiful. Absolutely. I, I need the differences between us. I don't need, I, I do not want us to be the same. I, I need the mystery of Hinduism. I need the disciplines of Islam and I, I need the resilience of Judaism. And I, I, I so desperately need all of those things to be present in my life. And I don't want to sit there and say, well, if you did this and this and this, no, I want you to grow your garden and I would like to sit there and and <laughs> and and learn from it and all kinds of things. And 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 if you let me eat from your garden as well because um because there's just there's so much good out there and I'm not sure why we deny ourselves good things. Um just cuz they look a little different than us. So I hope that's something that, that people can learn more and more. Again, it could be, some of it could be just like a lack of familiarity. Like some people, they eat their Southern cuisine exclusively and they don't try new things or whatever. <laughs> I'm going to use food as an analogy here because I'm a big foodie, but. Well, food is, is good. <laughs> exactly. And they don't try their things because it looks weird or different or whatever. But I think as people become more and more proximate to things, they start to be more and more open to it. And so I'm not going to say that's the case in every single situation because I don't think broad strokes are are helpful. And I do think some people really do have like opposition to some things. But um, I think as we move forward, more and more people are, are opening up to the idea of like, oh, wow, I can just sit with you and learn from you and like appreciate you and the story and the faith that you have 
and I don't have to sit here and try and convert you. I can just enjoy your presence and not think that you're going to be sent to hell the whole time that we're having a conversation. Like, I think that that's a much more beautiful, much more healthy, much more, I'm going to say truthful way forward um, for us. Yes, here in America. Yes, here in the South, because we need it. But even globally, I think we, we need to have better conversations and, um, you know, demystify some of the differences that we have, because I think we all we all get excited about new shoes. And we all, you know, enjoy dessert and we all look forward to, you know, like or I don't say everyone looks forward to their birthday, but, you know, we look forward to like those kinds of events and we enjoy our holidays. And we enjoy our feasts and um, we like jokes and all kinds of things. So while there we yeah, we have differences and, and and we can learn and be edified by those differences. There's also a lot that we that we share. And I think that if we want real peace moving forward, which we, we desperately need, and I'm not gonna I, I'm not someone who's like <laughs> I'm not ignorant to how hard things are out there right now. Um, I'm not ignorant to the fact that there are extremists of lots of stripes. But I think if we ever ever want anything to be better i think there are enough people out there who want to run towards each other and and be each other's friends and i think that that's how we can begin to make real changes in the world sometimes i feel bad for people who like don't and this is gonna sound maybe i'm gonna say it's gonna sound petty but maybe it should because (laughs) i'm kind of like now when i see people who kind of close themselves off to that i'm kind of like man that stinks my life's always going to be better than yours. <laughs> like, <laughs> like my life is just going to, I have so, there's so much richness and beauty that I have been able to experience because I've unlearned so many of those toxic things that I grew up with. And, you know, even no matter what happens in my life, whatever, whatever goes on, I'm always going to have that outlook of, of approaching people and being like, this is a friend, not a, oh, wow, this person is going to hell and I need to try and convert them. And (laughs) (laughs) exactly, exactly. (laughs) Which. Yeah. 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 Those are the people that I uh, really, really struggle to love. (laughs) Yeah. If if that's your frame, whenever you approach someone new that you're, it's always going to color your conversation, your relationship and, well, you're not going to want a real relationship with them until they, you know, convert to your way of thinking, which is not, it's not a true friendship, it's not a true relationship. No, it's not a true friendship. Yeah. I was going to say, like, even like, I'm a, I'm, my, I'm, I'm a corporate gal. I'm an IT project manager. Like, that's my background. And even in those, like, corporate cold settings, we so desperately in every meeting need the different different stripes of folks. I need the apps team. I need the DBAs. I need the business. I need all of these people who have their experiences and their areas of expertise to come together so we can fix problems. <laughs> and in the and if we do it well, we might actually enjoy each other's company mm-hmm. in the meantime. <laughs> so <laughs> I just think that there's so much to be gained from diversity of, of, of thought and experience in the same space. And it's not a buzzword. We just, we, we frankly desperately need one another in all of our experiences and whole selves that we can, we can bring to the table to really bring the kind of restoration to the world that we really, really need to see. So Abigail, tell us about your blog. Um, why did you start it and what kind of things do you write about and what's, 
what does the future hold for the blog? Absolutely. So the blog is called The New Contemplatives. We're undergoing a relaunch and rebrand right now. And what I wanted to do was to create a place for people um, post like adolescent spirituality um, where we could share experiences and musings and and our journeys with one another and, and write these blog posts and encourage one another that we're not alone in our disillusionment and we're not alone in our frustrations and questions and that there is a path forward and that we are invited to walk on that path and we don't have to walk down that path alone. So that's the hope of the new contemplatives. Um, I chose the title, the new contemplatives because contemplation is an area of faith that has, I've grown a lot from. I have, it's been instrumental in me reconstructing my faith and, you know, learning how to be and to listen and to observe and become more present with myself and, and with divine. And I think that's important. However, something I've noticed in those spaces is, is sometimes it tends to be older and whiter and <laughs> um, more like very, it's, it's, it's a very white environment and it's, it's very good in its, in its own way, but it's not as inclusive or colorful as I think it could be. I think people have this idea of contemplation as like you wear long robes and you're very quiet and you walk around <laughs> and stare at a candle. Yes. You follow the rules for the next 20 minutes or whatever. And Exactly. Yeah. And so while I do like, of course, contemplation, silence, um, listening, prayer, you know, going on walks, spending time in nature. I think those are all very important to the spiritual journey. I would like people to be able to see that if you don't fit that I wear white robes all the time and I kind of glide around and am silent, that's, to me, that's not what contemplation is. I think anyone of any stripe can do contemplation and you can be extraordinarily colorful and fun and all kinds of things, which is kind of why I wanted to put the, like, when left to my own devices, I enjoy dancing to Shakira because that's a good time for me. And I can be someone who considers myself a contemplative and also have a good time because I don't hold those things exclusively. And I think sometimes when you enter a space, <laughs> like the contemplative space that, that currently exists, it's like, oh, um, while it is a little freer than other spaces, there's something about it that still feels a little bit sanitized. And so I want people to be able to feel like, oh no, this is for you and your whole authentic self. And so that's the hope of, of, of the new contemplatives is to encourage people to bring their whole authentic self into their, their faith journey post deconstruction. That sounds like a great thing, great needed service and um, venue for people to, you know, to dialogue about that. And I think it fits well with the, um, having a space for interfaith dialogues to occur as well. If we're going to, uh, my understanding of contemplation from Father Richard Rohr is that contemplation is choosing to look for God in all things. Mm -hmm. And in his book, Everything Belongs, he even talks about what we can learn from other religions and how they can practice contemplation as well. And, um, and so I think it sounds like your interfaith dialogues and things you love to talk about fits well into contemplation as well. Oh, absolutely. Even it was, you know, my journey into contemplation 
I think helped foster my ability to talk to to engage in interfaith dialogue because I'll say like contemplative practices in particular, those are universal languages. Like even, even down to prayer beads, everybody's got prayer beads. <laughs> like, <laughs> so when you talk about prayer practices and soon you learn like, Oh, Coptic Christians actually pray almost identically to Muslims. That's something we share when we talk about, you know, listening prayer and meditation and things like that, those are things that look very similar. And so a lot of the practices, I would say in particular, can really, um, we can really see one another when we, when we recognize our own practices and the practices of others. All right, Abby, we like to end all of our podcasts by asking the same question of our interviewees. Who or what is God to you now? God is the big mystery that I think we're all trying to figure out. I think God is that which holds everything together. The philosopher Anaximander talked about, you know, this idea of Zapirin, which is like the original source and cause of everything. And I believe that the God who we're all trying to learn about and engage with is the source and creator of everything and that we can find great peace in that the foundation and architect of reality itself, the universe, everything that is held within it is love itself. And so that no matter what happens, we are all quite literally contained within the great isness that is God and that is love itself. So I think my religious practice is when I get caught up in whatever's just happening around me. My religious practice is what walks me back into that and going, okay, the highest state of things is love itself. And I can engage with that and I can be a purveyor of that in the world and I can join alongside of others who are attempting to be purveyors of that as well. 